As we get started today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are a people that need you. <laughs> Lord, I am prone to wander. I'm prone to leave the God I love. Lord, take my heart. Bind it. Bind it to you that I might not be prone to wander. Lord, may we not be hypocritical as we read in the passage today. May we not be people who seek the praise of one another. May we be people who seek you alone, your praise. Lord, guide our wandering hearts back to you. Lord, teach us your songs. Give us, as David prayed, a new song that we might sing. A song that is one to you. Lord, the audience of one that our words and our actions might be honoring to you, that we might not sin against you. Lord, we ask for insight into this passage, knowing that you are the God who is able to reveal your word to us. You've given us your instruction clearly in your word, and as we study it today, we ask that you would give us your spiritual insight through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that, that this would not be a series of words, but that this would be your very word spoken to us, and we might take it as such. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in the 1950s, an American college student had gone to Mexico. While in Mexico, he wrote a letter to his fiance, who is back in the States, and he was telling her that the engagement was off that he had found a new love. I want to read to you part of his letter to her. He says, we communists have a high casualty rate. We're the ones who get slandered and ridiculed and fired from our jobs, and in every other way, made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists don't have time or the money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes and new cars. We've been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. We communists have a philosophy of life which no amount of money could buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty, personal selves into a great movement of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard or our egos appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the fact that each of us, in his small way, is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. The communist cause is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife and mistress, my bread and meat. I work at it in the daytime and dream of it at night. Its hold on me grows and not lessens as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating it to this force which both guides and drives my life. I evaluate people, books, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude toward it. I've already been in jail because of my ideas, and if necessary, I'm ready to go before the firing squad. A man fully and totally committed, sold out 100%, giving everything that he has, finances, relationships, his life even, for a lie. For a lie that promises something that it will never be able to deliver. A cause that is bigger than himself, and yet at the same time, smaller than himself. 
In the next three sections, we're going to see Jesus talking about giving, praying, and fasting. Jesus talks a little about how to pray, how to give, and how to fast, but his concern is not the how. He talks about where we give, where we pray, and where we fast, but his concern is not the where. What Jesus is concerned with is why we give, why we pray, and why we fast. As we look at these over the next couple weeks, keep that question in mind. Why do I give? Why do I pray? And why do I fast? Because the answer to that question, the answer to why, reveals the condition of our hearts. Why we do what we do shows the condition of our hearts. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read the first four verses. You remember that Jesus had been taking the law and saying, the law says, but I tell you. Jesus had been taking the law and says, these outward actions, if we shove them into your heart, produce what I'm looking for. The outward actions alone, obedience to the law, without a heart that has been changed, is not what Jesus is looking for. Let's read the passage, Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. These first two verses, Jesus is offering a warning. The warning is you have these religious hypocrites, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the scribes of the law. They're kind of lumped together and Jesus is calling these people hypocrites. The outside, they do what looks right, but they're whitewashed tombs. They look clean on the outside, but they're full of dead bones. They're like a cup that's clean on the outside, but on the inside is disgusting and dirty. And Jesus says that here are the hypocrites. His warning is, don't be like the hypocrites. See their example and don't do it. What the hypocrites are doing here is, verse 1, practicing their righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. That means that their giving, that their life, that their intention is to be seen by others. Their goal was that they would receive the praise. This is man-centered. This is self-focused. So Jesus' warning is, see what they do and watch yourself. Watch yourself that you don't become like the Pharisees. I think the Pharisees should have asked themselves, why do I do what I do? Why am I giving? And specifically, if nobody else saw it, would I still give? If nobody else saw my giving, because they do it to be seen by others, that's their goal. If there was nobody to see it, would I still give? The Pharisees wanted to be seen. They had big robes, big hats, shiny jewelry. They made a big spectacle of everywhere they went. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to be praised. Their giving was in the same way. Jesus will tell us their prayer is the same way. Their fasting is the same way. And so as the law told you, now I tell you, Jesus is saying, watch out for the hypocrites. This is how they give. Watch out for the hypocrites. This is how they pray. Watch out for the hypocrites. This is how they fast. Their goal was to be seen. If we go all the way back to the early church, in the beginning of Acts, Luke starts to tell the story of how the early church came to be. Jesus had been crucified on the cross. He had been buried. He had been resurrected. 
He spent time with his people, and then he ascended back to heaven. And then the early church was left to carry on the business that he had given them, to carry on making disciples, telling the world of who Jesus was. And the early church, they had it right. In the beginning of Acts, we see these people that are devoted to God's word. They're devoted to prayer. They're devoted to one another. So much so that they were willing to do things that were not normal. These new Christians had a problem. The problem was becoming a new Christian in Jewish society meant that you had to leave everything you knew. The Jews worshipped God, and the Christians worshipped God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Jews said, Jesus, what you call God the Son, is not really God. He was just a man. And it divided the Jews between the Christians, and the Jews said, you're worshiping a false idol in Jesus. So the Jews wanted nothing to do with the Christians, so much so that they kicked them out of their homes, they were not allowed to own land, they were not allowed to shop in the marketplace, they were not allowed to go into the temple, they were not allowed to have friends that were Jewish. The Jews excommunicated and isolated, exiling these new Christians. So the new Christians come to the church in thousands and they can't eat. There's no food. There's no money. They got fired from their jobs. They lost everything they had. Like the communists, they were willing to give it all up, but that didn't mean that there weren't still problems. So some rich new Christians came and said, well, I've got a field that I can sell and here's all the money. Distribute it however we need. And so these people would come to the apostles saying, you know, I had this piece of property and I sold it. Use it however you need. This early church saw so much that their brethren, the other Christians, had needs that they were willing to forego what they had hard worked for, that their earnings, their assets, they sold them to give them to one another. The early church had it right. And then in Acts 5, this same thing happens again. A man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they get together and they say, hey, let's sell this property that we have. And then they plotted. The two of them said, let's give the money to the apostles. We see other people doing it. That's a good thing. Let's do that thing. Let's give it to the apostles. But the problem was what Ananias and Sapphira decided to do was not give all of the money. They wanted to keep some of it for themselves, but they told the apostles, this is all of it. We sold it for this much money and we gave it all to you. But they didn't. They held on to some of it. You see, they could have just held on to some of it and said, here's a bunch of money. We're giving you a bunch of money. Is that all of it? Doesn't matter to you. Just take the money. It's my business what I sold it for. It's my business what I'm giving. There's a bunch of money. But like the Pharisees, like the hypocrites that Jesus is talking about, Ananias and Sapphira wanted the praise. They saw these other people. They were giving out of their goodwill. They were giving for the needs. And Ananias and Sapphira said, let's do that same thing. We'll be seen by others. We'll be applauded by them. We'll have earned their goodwill. They'll love us. So they agreed. Ananias, the husband, comes to Peter and he says, hey, Peter, we got a bunch of money we're going to give you, and we sold this, this piece of property, and here's all the money. Through God's revelation, Peter looks at Ananias. He says, why have you done this thing? Peter knows immediately that Ananias is lying to him. Why, Ananias, have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And Ananias literally dies at Peter's feet, just falls down dead. There's some young men nearby, and so they come and they pick up the body of this 10-second dead man, and they take him out and bury him. A couple hours later, his wife comes, and she comes to Peter, 
And she says, hey, Peter, we're giving you this money. And Peter's like, oh, you haven't heard. <laughs> you, okay, this is... So he asks her, is this the price that you sold it for? This money that you're bringing, is this what you sold it for? And she says, yes, this is the price. And Peter says, listen, Sapphira, do you hear those footsteps? Those footsteps are the men coming back from burying your husband. And they're coming back to bury you. And she fell dead at Peter's feet. See, Ananias and Sapphira saw the good that the new church was doing. They saw what was happening, and they wanted to be a part of it. But their hearts were so far from wanting to be a part of it, they just wanted the praise. Jesus is warning that the righteousness that you do in front of others is the praise. You want the praise from others, you got what you wanted. There's no reward left from God if you want and receive the praise from other people. The right things done for the wrong reasons are the wrong things. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to give. They wanted to give to meet the needs of the poor and the needy, but they wanted to be praised more than that. Giving was good. Wanting the praise for yourself instead of wanting it to go to God was wrong. It tarnished their good thing. The good thing done for the wrong reasons is not a good thing. It's not the right thing. The Pharisees and these hypocrites gave, which was good, but they did it so they'd be applauded, which makes their giving the wrong thing. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. Now, I seriously considered bringing a trumpet so I could show you the ridiculousness of this. I was telling my wife, I'm going to get a trumpet and blow it. And she said, you're not going to do that. I said, I think I will. She says, your face is already red. You're, you're embarrassed just telling me you're going to blow a trumpet. I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> but let me tell you how ridiculous this is. These people so wanted to be praised, and I, I don't know if Jesus is just reaching for an extreme, ridiculous example, or if this truly happened. I did as much research as I could, and I couldn't find whether this is just an outlandish example or if this truly happened. But imagine this, what Jesus is saying, this hypocrite with his fancy clothes and his fancy hat. He comes in to the temple, which is a busy place. There's people sacrificing animals and there's people bringing their kids and there's the women and the, the Jews and the Gentiles and the temple workers and the Levites. And it's this central place for all of Judaism's religious life. And here comes this hypocrite dressed as fancy as he can, and he walks into the temple, and he's like looking around, and he's waiting for it to quiet down, and it's perfectly quiet. He's like, da, 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 da. <laughs> Hear ye, hear ye. Come to me, poor people. I have money for you. And he like pulls out his wallet, and it's like, $20, $20, $20, $20, $20. And they're like, wow, look at this guy giving all his money. He's like, I know. I'm amazing. Even more ridiculous, and I don't know which is true. Imagine that hypocrite bringing like his own trumpeter with him, like a man who plays the trumpet everywhere he goes. And he's like, okay, look, there's a lot of people. Okay, do it now. Play it, play it. Go, go, go. Here I am, everybody. You're welcome. It's ridiculous. They're liter literally tooting his own horn having people come to him because he is so wonderful. It's ridiculous. And Jesus is saying, look at how silly that looks. You serve a God who is infinite, who has no need for any of your money, 
And instead of giving him the praise, the God of all creation, the God who created you and the money and the temple and everything you see and touch and do, and you want the praise. If you get praise, you got it. That is your reward. That was a transaction. You gave money, you received your reward. That's the end. There is no reward from God because you wanted praise from man, you received praise from man, transaction closed. Watch what you do it for is what Jesus was saying. The praise of man is temporary. You want it, you got it, it's done. But watch, Jesus says, be careful. Take heed to what you do in front of others to be seen by them. See, the Pharisees wanted to be seen as good men. They wanted others to look at them and say, that is a good man. But the Pharisees didn't want to actually be good men. They wanted to be seen as good men, but they didn't want to actually be good men. Do you see the difference? They just want other people to say, he is such a good man, look at what he gives. That's what they wanted. They didn't want to actually be good and give to the poor and give to the needy. They just wanted to be perceived as good men. In the temple, in the synagogues, if this trumpet-playing hypocrite walked in and nobody was there, would he still have given? I think if the onlookers vanished, so would the giving. Because they were not giving to God, they were giving so that they might be praised. That's the warning that Jesus has. Be careful not to do good things to be seen by others. Your good things seen by others is its own reward. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus warned them how not to give. The heart's intention behind giving was not to be done for other people. And now he's telling them how to give, the purpose of why you should be giving. The difference here, the Pharisees and these hypocrites were man-centered, and Jesus is saying, you should be God-centered. And how do we know the difference between what is man-centered and what is God-centered? I take you to last week where we looked at Matthew 5, verse 47, and Jesus asks them, what are you doing that is not ordinary? What are you doing that is not ordinary? What's abnormal about your life? What's extraordinary about what you do. The hypocrites, they all do what they do. They all get the praise. They all pat each other on the back. They all want to be loved. They all want to be praised. They want to be applauded. But what do you do that's unordinary? If this is ordinary, Jesus paints the picture of the hypocrites are ordinary. But what do you do that is unordinary? The early church, as I said, they had it right. They were unordinary in every way. There was a man named Aristides. He was an Athenian philosopher. If you want to look him up, he's Aristides of Athens. There were a bunch of different men named Aristides. This is one of Athens. And in about 125 AD, so less than 100 years after Jesus had died and had you know, ascended back to heaven, this man Aristides came along. And he was writing to the Roman emperor Hadrian. And what Aristides was telling Hadrian is that there's this new sect of people, this new religion, and they're very different. They are not ordinary. They're not normal. And Aristides writes this letter to Hadrian and he gives a bunch of examples about what makes this new Christianity different. Why and how are these new Christians, these followers of a man named Jesus that, that we killed a while ago, what makes them unordinary? Let me read what Aristides wrote to Hadrian telling him what makes the Christians different. They do not commit adultery nor fornication. They do not bear false witness. They do not deny a deposit nor covet 
what is not theirs. They honor their father and mother. They do good to those who are their neighbors. They love one another. And from the widows, they do not turn away their countenance. And they rescue the orphan from him who does him violence. And he who has gives to him who had not without grudging. When one of their poor passes away from the world and any of them sees him, then he provides for his burial according to his ability. And if they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if it is possible that he may be delivered, they deliver him. And if there is among them a poor man, needy, and they have not an abundance of necessaries, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with necessary food. What makes these Christians unique, Aristides is telling the emperor, is that they, they do the Ten Commandments, like they love their mother and father, they, don't, like, they obey this, this law that they already have, but then they care for the widows, they care for the orphans, they give to people that don't have. If some poor person dies, they spend their money to bury him. If someone is in prison for being oppressed for the name of their Messiah, they go and try to pay his bail. If there is a man who is needy, I think Aristides closes with this on purpose. If there is someone who's hungry, the Christian man will choose not to eat for two or three days so he can give food to the hungry person. Living as a Christian is not living normal. It's not ordinary. Jesus is saying, but when you give to the poor, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. The hypocrites stand in front of everybody calling attention to themselves, but you, as followers of Jesus, shouldn't even let your hands know what they're doing. Another extreme example that's impossible. Your hand shouldn't even know what your other hand is doing. That things that are this close together should still be done in secret. The new Christians, the early church, heard what Jesus said, they believed what Jesus said, and they lived it. A lot of people hear, a lot of people believe, but what makes Christianity unordinary is the living it out. Hearing, believing, and living are such different things. Aristides is saying, these new Christians, there's something different about them. They are not normal. One of the things that's not normal about them is their giving is not just something that they do from their hand, it's something they do from their heart. Giving is not just a hand-oriented action. That's what everybody does. There are people that feed the homeless all over the world. Good, non-Christian organizations that do good things. That's a hand action. They see a need, they want to meet a need. What Jesus calls us to is a heart action that produces a hand action. Giving in Christianity, following Jesus, starts with a heart that is rightly prepared before him that turns into an action that flows out of a heart that loves God. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. If you give because you're guilty and you feel guilty and maybe if I give, I won't feel bad, or if you give because other people are giving and it's like, Oh, it's passed to me. I guess I better get five bucks. Like, or if you're reluctantly giving and saying, I don't really want to give, don't do it. Don't do it. It's no better than the hypocrite just wanting praise. You're just trying to appease the guilt. You're trying to appease the shame. Jesus is saying, don't do it. 
God loves a cheerful giver. Give out of the abundance of the heart knowing that God has so freely given to you that I choose to give freely to God. It's a cheerfulness. It's a joy that comes from giving, not a compulsion, not an I have to. Turn with me to, to Psalm uh, 112. And I want to say why we're, why we're turning there. If you're new to your Bible and it takes you time to get somewhere, that's totally fine. If you read and you're like, I don't know the difference between Amos and Hezekiah and all these other people and I don't even know what that means, that's totally fine. In the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents. It tells you the book name and the page it's on. Just find it. It's all right. If you don't have a Bible, we've got a bunch of Bibles. I've got like a, a bunch of nice leather-bound Bibles. I know you've got your phone, but I like reading out of a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, let me know or call the office. We'll have one. We'll have it sitting for you. I want you to be able to have a Bible if you want one. And it's okay if it takes you a long time to get there. It's on page 878 in my Bible. <laughs> Yours will be totally different, so that's not helpful. <laughs> Psalm 112. These are the traits, the characteristics of a righteous person. It says, Hallelujah. Happy is the person who fears the Lord, taking great delight in his commands. His descendants will be powerful in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light shines in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, compassionate, and righteous. Good will come to the one who lends generously and conducts his business fairly. He will never be shaken. The righteous one will be remembered forever. He will not fear bad news. His heart is confident trusting in the Lord. His heart is assured and he will not fear. In the end, he will look in triumph over his foes. He distributes freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. The righteous man, the man that gives out of a heart action, is described here in this psalm. Verse 9 says he gives freely to the poor. His heart desires to give freely to the poor. This man does not have guilt or shame. He doesn't feel like he should because everybody else is. He's chosen to give this way. And the psalmist says, this is a righteous man. The righteous man is not one that gives out of his guilt or because he is compelled by some external force. Somebody's making him feel this way. Some feeling of negativity means I have to give. Just don't give. God loves a cheerful giver, not one giving out of compulsion. Giving should also cost us something. Giving should be a sacrifice. In 2 Samuel 24, King David wants to offer a sacrifice to God. The problem is he's not anywhere near an altar. And so David finds this flat rock, and he says, this would be a good place for an altar. And so he goes to the man, and he knocks on his door, if they had doors, and he said, hey, I want to offer to the Lord. And the man's like, you're King David. I know, I've heard about you. You're God's chosen king. You're our people's leader. It's like the president coming and like knocking on your door and he's like, hey, can I use the bathroom real quick? You're like, you're the president? How did you get here? So this man says to David, you're trying to build an altar? You want to use my land? David's like, yeah, that, that piece of property over there. I want to buy it so I can set up an altar. We can offer an, honor, an offering to the Lord. And the man's like, dude, you are the king of the nation. God literally anointed you through the prophet? Just take it. It's yours. Just do what you want to do. I don't even care. It's your property now. And David tells him, I'm not going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord that didn't cost me anything. I will pay for the land because sacrifice when we give to the Lord is important. Me feeling the giving is important. If I've got $100 million in the bank and I give 20 bucks, I'm not even going to notice. Sacrifice is important when we give. Turn with me to Mark chapter 12. It's after Matthew, if you go toward the right. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 41. It 
says, sitting across from the temple treasury, he, Jesus, watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in very large sums, and then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. The reason why, for, verse 44, they gave all out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. You can imagine this, the temple, again, the bustling place, and Jesus is kind of like sitting off to the side, and he's just watching. And in that day, they didn't have paper money, they had coins. And so people giving large sums of money would have come in with like a cartoonish money bag, a basket of some sort with like lots of coins. And it's said that they tried to give in the most... I mean, to me, it'd be obnoxious, but the loudest way so that people would see them giving large amounts. And so I picture some kind of like bronze vessel or container, and these hypocrites with their large money bags are like holding them up so that like the coins clank and are loud. And Jesus is telling his disciples, come here real quick, come here, watch this. And the disciples are like, yeah, I know we saw that guy. That was a huge bag of money. And Jesus is like, stop, listen, watch her. Watch that lady right there. And I imagine that lady earlier in the day sat at her house alone. Her husband has died. She presumably has no kids to care for her. And she sat at home with two little coins. And her heart wanted to give them to the Lord. So she sits at home praying, God, I don't have anything else. I don't know how to survive. I don't know how to eat. I don't know how to do anything. But I want to give this to you. So she prays and she goes to the temple and unassumingly she walks up and she pulls little coins out and she drops them in and just walks away. And Jesus is saying, did you see that? Did you guys see that? She gave so much more than the rest of them. All of them, hers was more. If you're walking with your shopping cart full of groceries and you're going back to your car, you wouldn't even stop to pick up a couple of nickels all she had. She gave everything she had. And Jesus is saying, her sacrifice. She gave until it hurt. She didn't give like it hurt. She gave until it hurt. She wanted to give to the Lord, and so she gave what she had. The rest of them, they're rich. They just gave some money. But she had nothing and gave everything that she had It's not about the amount. It's never about the amount. When you give to the Lord for whatever you give, however you meet those needs, it is absolutely 100% never about the quantity. God has never said, I need you to give a lot more. Like what you're giving, I know your heart's right, but man, it needs to be more. It's about the heart that gives the heart that gives is cheerful. God loves the cheerful giver. Jesus is talking about the poor, but when you give to the poor, verse 3. Our neighbors to the south in Mexico, the average daily earnings is $11. Say that again just so you don't think I said hourly. The average daily earnings in Mexico is $11 per day. The average hourly earnings in the United States is almost triple that. When you go to work and you take a 20-minute bathroom break, you've earned what someone in Mexico will earn all day while you're in the bathroom. $11 a day. That's $2,500 a year. Not a week, not a month. A year, $2,500 a year is what the average worker in Mexico makes. When Jesus says, give to the poor, when you give to the poor, man, we're a rich people. I know so many Mexican families that work here and send money home. Even though they don't actually make much money here, the discrepancy is huge. We are rich people. We can give to the poor. 
giving should cost us something. And giving should come from a heart of compassion. Turn back with me to Psalm 72. Psalm 72, verse 12. Speaking of God, Solomon says, For he, God, will rescue the poor who cry out, and the afflicted who have no helper. He will have pity on the poor and helpless. He will save the lives of the poor. He will redeem them from oppression and violence, for their lives are precious in his sight. God is a God of compassion. We serve a God who is compassionate. He will rescue the poor who cry out, the afflicted, the poor, and the helpless, save the lives of the poor, redeem them from oppression, because, the last verse, their lives are precious in his sight. When we give, we should be like God who has compassion. God's compassionate, compassion is evident throughout the Bible. Jesus was compassionate. Jesus was compassionate on the hungry people many different times. He was compassionate on the distressed and the despised and the dejected. He was compassionate on those who were sick, on those who were blind. He says that he was compassionate on those who were like sheep without a shepherd. He was compassionate on a man who is in overwhelming debt. He was even compassionate toward their enemies, the Samaritans. Jesus lived a life that was compassionate. If we say we are Christians, we ought to be like Jesus. Jesus was compassionate. In this passage, there are two words that stuck out to me in Matthew 6, 1 through 4. In verse 2, it says, whenever you give. And in verse 3, it says, when you give. When you give is an expectation. Jesus doesn't say, if you give, or, you know, if you guys decide one day that you want to give, or that'd be great if you did, but you don't have to. Jesus is just assuming that Christians are giving people, that his followers are giving people. It's not a suggestion. You might want to think about this as part of, you know, your religious activities. But Jesus is saying, when you give. And verse 2 says, whenever you give. Whenever has the connotation that this is not a one-time life event. I gave like 20 years ago, so I've really got my bases covered. Whenever you give is an ongoing thing. It happens with regularity. If you look at Jesus' life all through the Gospels, he was constantly approached by people and seeing her had compassion on her. Seeing them had compassion on them. Don't keep the little children away. He had compassion. Bring them near to me. The man born blind had compassion on him and healed him. If we're Christians that follow a compassionate Jesus and a compassionate God, we ought to also likewise be compassionate. 1 John 3.17 says, If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Let me put that into the first person for you. If you have the world's goods and you see a fellow believer in need and you do not have compassion on him, how does God's love reside in you? If we are people that see a fellow believer, another Christian, like, take a minute and look to your left. Look down the aisles. Like, literally do this for me. Look at somebody to your left. They're all looking that way too, so it's okay. <laughs> now look the other direction. Look to your right. All right, that's enough. <laughs> you have looked at a person, odds are, that can't pay a bill this month. A person that said, we didn't pay PG&E last month, so let's pay PG&E and we won't pay the car payment because the car won't get repossessed in one month. 
a person that's called their insurance company and said, what's the minimum I can pay for my kid's emergency medical expense? Hey, my mom died and she lives in Mexico and I can't go to see her. What's the cheapest way for me to get there? You've seen someone who has needs. And if you as a Christian know of a need that another brother has and refuse to meet it, and may God have pity on your soul. How does God's love reside in the uncompassionate Christian? It doesn't make sense for us to say we follow Jesus and Jesus was compassionate, yet I don't want to be compassionate because I'd rather have my money. I don't want to be compassionate because I don't want to have to go out of my way. I don't want to be compassionate because talking to that guy is weird. I don't want to be compassionate. Jesus can be compassionate. That's fine for him. Here in our church, we have needs. You know, I asked Mary to put these benevolence envelopes in your bulletin again. We usually put them in the first Sunday of every month. Benevolence fulfills all of this. 1 John 3, 17, and giving in secret. The way that we do benevolence is the money that goes into benevolence, whether you write a check and write benevolence or put it in the envelope or whatever, it goes into an account. That account is not for anything else. 100% of it goes to meet the needs, almost every one of them, of the people to your left and your right. It's overseen by a husband and a wife, and they pray about it. When the needs come in, we send them to this couple, and we say, here's the need, here's the details. They pray and ask God for wisdom. Lord, should we meet this need? How can we meet this need? They look at the amount in that account, and they look at the need. They say, we can. We believe we should. So they write a check to PG&E and mail it off to support the brothers and sisters who are in need. Benevolence goes straight to us having the world's goods and seeing a fellow believer in need, but showing compassion. God's works, God's creation, God's nature, God's character are all good and benevolent to us. Benevolence is the characteristics or the qualities of desiring and doing good. That's God in a nutshell. He not only desires, but he has the capabilities of doing good, and so he does. God had the capabilities of doing good when you were lost in your sin. When you were still walking in darkness, a benevolent God came and said, I will make a way for you. A benevolent God said, I could just let you die. I could just let you stand before me and hold your sins in the palm of my hand and said, because you've sinned, you spend eternity in hell. But a God who is benevolent showed his love for us in that while he has the capabilities, he chose to show mercy instead. He chose to say, I'll forgive those. Here's my son who will die on the cross for your sins that you don't have to. If we take a step out of our church and we look at our community, if you go to Walmart, you go walk through Walmart, you do your shopping and you come back and you check out, you have walked past a person who does not know where the next meal is coming from, who cannot afford to buy food, and who tells their kids, you go ahead and eat. I'm not hungry. If the poor and needy in our church and the poor and needy in our community Someone literally suffering because they don't have food. Let me tell you, my wife used to teach at a country school. She taught kindergarten. One day they had, she had two new students. They both came from the Middle East, literally did not speak a word of English, could not say bathroom, food, literally could not communicate with anybody. Nobody at the school spoke their language, and here were these two kindergarten students just dropped in America. They were cousins, and these two girls were so poor that they had two outfits between them. So on Monday, one would wear red and one would wear blue. 
On Tuesday, they would switch. One would wear blue and one would wear red. Wednesday, one would wear red, one would wear blue. They were so poor that they literally had one outfit to wear. If the poor and needy don't drive you to compassion, if the needs of the people around you don't drive you to compassion, I would pray seriously and say, Lord, make me compassionate. Make me hurt when other people hurt. Make me care when other people have needs. The early church literally had known and walked with Jesus. The first thing they did was, I'm going to sell all my crap and give it to somebody who needs it. If you need it, I got it. So there you go. They never said, but does that guy actually work? Well, I, I mean, like, if he's hungry, he should go to work. It's in the Proverbs somewhere. Like, I know that says that. If your first thought about me saying you need to give money to someone who's hungry is, but is he working? That's a you problem, not a him problem. We need to be people who are compassionate because Jesus was compassionate. Giving should be done in secret, Jesus says. Verse, where am I? Verse 4. So that your giving may be done in secret and your heavenly Father who sees in secret will reward you. During the time that Jesus was alive when he was writing this, before the temple had been destroyed in AD 70, there was what they called the Chamber of Secrets. This chamber, even though it has kind of a nefarious name, was just basically an empty room. And in this room, the people with means, with the world's goods, could go and, in secret, put in whatever they wanted. It was out of the way. It wasn't right in the middle where everybody would see it. And so you'd get somebody who was kind of rich, and he'd go look around, make sure nobody saw him, and he'd go into this chamber of secrets and leave food or money or whatever somebody might need, and then walk out. There was no temple staff, no logbook, just somewhere for them to go and leave a gift. Somebody that was poor could then walk by and walk in and take out anything they wanted. Nobody knew, nobody monitored, nobody checked to see, is he taking the right amount? It was just people giving and people receiving in secret. That, I think, is what Jesus was talking about. That when you give, you're giving, your right hand doesn't know, your left hand doesn't know. Nobody knows, but God knows. Your Father who, is in, who sees in secret, will reward you. The contrast here is the hypocrites who give to be seen and your father who sees even what is not meant to be seen. The hypocrites, all they wanted was to be seen. But you should not even try to be seen, so much so that your two hands don't even know what each other are doing. That's what God sees. God sees that. Giving should be done with eternity in mind. I'm going to skip that one. We don't have time. So I ask you with all of this, with the idea that Jesus is teaching us how not to give and how we should give, the heart behind desiring to be seen and the heart desiring God's approval and God's pleasure, pleasure God's applause, not those things of man. That giving should be from the heart, not just from the hand, that it should cost us something, that it should be from a heart that is compassionate and done in secret. I ask you what stands in our way. What stops us from doing exactly what Jesus says? What stops us from being like the early church and saying, I don't care. So, I'll be poor and destitute because my brothers and sisters have a need. What stands in our way? I submit to you that what stands in our way is the American dream. That we've been taught that we can have a big house, five cars, be in charge. That our goal, like the communist, is that my life 
would be under an umbrella of the American dream, that I would be protected by my assets, that I'll never have any needs because I can always take money out of my 401k, because I can trust my job, because I know I have enough. The communist was committed. I'll give anything for this cause. A lie. He did give it all. Gave up every penny that he had. Didn't even go to the movies because he didn't want to waste the money. Wanted to give it to a lie. See, both with the communist and the American dream, they both promise something that they will never deliver. The communist was promised that if we believe and support communism, the world will be a big, good place and everything will be okay. The American dream promises that if you live and work for 40 years, one day you can retire, just close your eyes and you can imagine this dream. You'll work for 40 years and you'll, you'll buy a new house and you'll buy a new car and you'll buy an RV and you'll go wherever you want and your life will be perfect as long as you keep your eyes closed. Keep them closed because the American dream will never come to fruition. The American dream must remain a dream because if you really look at it, at some point you got to wake up. At some point we have to wake up from the American dream and say, who cares about all my stuff? Who cares about all of it? In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells this story. He tells his followers, listen, a master went away. It's like this guy had all the money in the world and he goes away for a long time. But before he goes, he takes three of his servants and he tells his three servants, I'm going to give you some money and I'm going to be gone for a while. When I come back, I want to see what you did. So the servants all agree and to one he gives 10, doesn't matter what the denomination, like 10 units of money and to another one he gives two and to the third one, he gives one. And he goes and he's gone for a long, long time. And if I could submit to you, he's been gone for 2,000 years. But one day the master came back. And the master comes to the man with 10 and he says, I gave you 10, what did you do? And the man holds up the 10 and he gives it to him. He said, you gave me 10 and here's 10 more. I took what you gave me and I doubled it. The next man, he says, I gave you two. What did you do? The man holds up the two. He says, I have your two and I have two more. I doubled what you gave me. The master goes to the third man who's given one. He says, I gave you one. What did you do? And the man pulls out a, a bag that's got dirt all over it. And he says, listen, I know that your expectations are really high. I didn't think I could do it. I took what you gave me and I dug a little hole in the ground and I put it in there so that it wouldn't get stolen. I took what you gave me, I took what the master gave me and I dug a little hole and I put it in there. I took what the master gave me, I dug a little hole and I did nothing. You entrusted me to do something and said you're going to be gone for a long time and when you get back, I want to see what you did. One day the master's coming back. And the church in America is going to pull out a dirty little bag. I said, but I got the American dream. Got the big house, the five cars, I'm in charge. Is that what you wanted? Jesus says in the parable in Matthew 25, to this man and to these two men, very different things. To these two men, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I trusted you. I gave you 10 and you doubled it. You took what I gave you and you did something. Well done, I'm going to trust you with more. I didn't give you very much. You were of meager means. I didn't give you riches beyond compare. I didn't make you some billionaire with a yacht. I just gave you two. But you took that two and you multiplied it. 
well done, good and faithful servant. I trusted you. You did well. I'm going to put you in charge of even more. And he comes to the third man, the man who kept it for safekeeping. And he says to the man, you wicked, lazy, and evil servant, I trusted you and you failed me. It's not about how much we have. Ten, two, one. It doesn't matter what we have. God has never called us to give a certain amount. He calls us to faithfulness. Will you be faithful with what God has given you? Will you be faithful regardless of the amounts, whether it is two nickels, two mites that the widow had, or whether it is millions of dollars of property that the early church had? Will you be faithful with what the Lord has given you? The American dream is only as good as the person staying asleep. We have to wake up. There are souls that are lost. There are mouths that are hungry. There are backs that are unclothed. We have to wake up. We have to have compassion. We have to be willing to give, not because anybody knows, but because the Lord has called us to be faithful with what he's given us. Let's pray. Lord, may you make us people who are faithful. Lord, some rich, some poor, everyone else in the middle. Lord, may you be well pleased with our heart, with our offering, with our desire to serve you. Lord, may we not be like the hypocrites who stand desiring the praise, but may we be like the woman giving essentially nothing and receiving your praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.